The Crime Tree is a true crime podcast detailing the crimes and events committed against others. Listener discretion is advised. Wayne and Jennifer DeGrucci and their three children were your typical Aussie family, living at 28 Shearwater Boulevard in Shell Harbour's middle-class suburb of Albion Park Rail, approximately 100 kilometres east of the New South Wales capital of Sydney. Every Monday morning, Wayne would make the hour and a half commute up to Sydney where he worked, and it was not uncommon for him to spend the night at his parents' place if he'd had a long day. And this is where he was on the evening of Tuesday the 12th of March in 1996. Wayne had called Jenny earlier that day to let her know that he wouldn't be home, just as Jenny was getting ready to go pick up their two youngest children, 15-year-old Adrian and 13-year-old Sarah from school. What Wayne didn't know was that this quick phone call would be the last time he would speak to his wife, and within hours, Jenny and two of their three children would be brutally murdered. You are listening to The Crime Tree. I'm your host, Jasmine, and this is the story of Jennifer, Adrian and Sarah DeGrucci. Forty-one-year-old Jennifer Ann DeGrucci was a stay-at-home mum and had devoted the last 18 years to raising her kids. Their health, successes, hopes, goals and dreams, her main and top priority. And if Jenny thought that having three kids under the age of five was a challenge, Raising three teenagers was a whole new ball game. Thankfully, Matthew, Adrian and Sarah were all well-behaved and well-rounded kids. The youngest Sarah suffered from epilepsy and had just started her second year of high school and loved nothing more than listening to her favourite artists Mariah Carey and Celine Dion. And at just 13, she was yet to discover makeup and boys. And 15-year-old Adrian was more often than not found outside in the garage fixing or working on something. The oldest of the three DeGrucci kids was 18-year-old Matthew. Matt had finished high school only months earlier, hadn't applied for university and was still unsure what he wanted to do in life. But Wayne and Jennifer were not too concerned. Matt was a good kid. He never caused trouble and they knew he just needed some time to figure out his chosen career path. In fact, the only trouble Wayne and Jenny ever had with Matt were arguments over the use of the family car. Matthew didn't have a car of his own, and with Wayne often in Sydney, this left just the one vehicle, which was Jennifer's white Toyota Seeker hatchback, and Matthew would sometimes get upset if he wasn't allowed to use it, as it made visiting his girlfriend rather difficult. After collecting Adrian and Sarah from school on Tuesday the 12th of March, Jenny drove home and began to prepare dinner as Adrian and Sarah went to their rooms to complete their nightly homework. Once dinner was done, Adrian went straight to the garage to fix a broken wooden chair, while Sarah helped her mum clean up and wash the dishes, chatting away about her day at school. At around 7.30pm, Sarah made her way back to her bedroom, laid on her bed, put on her headphones and tuned out to everything around her while listening to her favourite cassette tape. Jenny spoke briefly on the phone with her mother Dorothy and then with her brother Raymond before turning in for the night to read her book. Meanwhile, 18-year-old Matthew had organised to spend the night at his girlfriend Alyssa's house and she was expecting him at around 9pm. He would have to take his mother's car, of course, 
but as long as he had it back before the morning school run, he was sure his mum wouldn't mind. When Matt hadn't arrived by 10pm, a worried Alyssa called the Degrucci house numerous times but received no answer. Assuming Matt wasn't coming, Alyssa went to bed only to be woken up an hour later when Matt finally showed up. He apologised to Alyssa and her mother for arriving at such a late hour, explaining to them that they'd been receiving prank phone calls at home which had frightened his mum so she'd asked him to stay home a bit longer. The following morning, Matthew got up early so he could return his mum's car on time, but when he arrived home, he noticed the house was unusually quiet. It was almost 8.30am and Adrian and Sarah should have been ready to leave for school. Making his way to the front master bedroom belonging to his parents, Matthew pushed open the door and called out to his mum. The bedroom curtains were closed, cloaking the room in a darkness that Matthew's eyes had not yet adjusted to and as soon as he switched the light on, he recoiled in horror, stumbled backwards and ran from the house. That morning, Stephen Bailey was outside and chatting to his father-in-law on the front lawn of his home, which was opposite to the DeGrucci house. Just minutes earlier, he'd waved to Matthew as he'd pulled into the driveway in his mother's car, and now a hysterical Matthew was running across the road calling out to him, shouting that something was wrong with his mum and Sarah. Stephen's first thought was that Sarah was having an epileptic seizure and ran to help, but within seconds he was back outside yelling at his father-in-law to call Triple O. First responders arrived at 28 Shearwater Boulevard at approximately 9am and Matthew was taken by ambulance to Shell Harbour Hospital where he was treated for shock. Chief Inspector Danny Sharkey of the New South Wales Police was one of the first responders on the scene followed not long afterwards by forensic pathologist Dr Alan Culler and detectives Williams and Pepper. Entering the house, the eerie silence from within was almost deafening, and what they found was so horrific that one detective never returned to duty. In the front master bedroom, Jennifer DeGrucci was found lying on her bed, still tucked under the blankets. On the bedside table were her glasses sitting atop the book she had been reading and in front of the bedside table on the floor were her slippers, all indications that Jennifer had not been out of bed since the previous night. Despite the lack of blood splatter on and around the bed, Jennifer's face and head had been so severely beaten that she was unrecognisable, and her brain was protruding from her skull. Her injuries were consistent with being attacked by a sledgehammer, and it was theorised that a pillow or cushion had been placed over her face first to stop the extensive blood splatter that her injuries should have caused. But on the wall above the bedhead, there was one spot of blood that was out of place and inconsistent with what was present. This was a blood droplet and lacked the cast-off tail the rest had, and a large section of carpet had been cut out and was missing from the floor beside the bed, not far from Jenny's slippers, along with two smaller coin-sized pieces leading back to the bedroom door. Jenny had no defensive wounds and appeared to have been attacked as she slept. Making their way to the next bedroom, the detectives found the body of 13-year-old Sarah. Again, the lack of blood splatter indicated that something had been placed between her head and the object inflicting the wounds. And on the floor beside her bed was a blood-soaked cushion that belonged in the dining room. But unlike her mum, Sarah tried to protect herself and on the inner aspect of her right forearm were numerous linear-type bruises from what was assumed to be a long, hard metal object. 
Sarah suffered massive trauma to her head, neck and face. She'd been struck over the head more than 10 times, her Walkman covered in blood and lying on the floor beside her bed. 15-year-old Adrian was found not long afterwards lying on his back on the floor in the garage. It appeared that he'd been hit from behind at first before coming face to face with his attacker. His chest and arms were covered in the same linear bruising that had been found on his sister. There were more than 21 separate injuries to Adrian's head, neck and face alone and there were numerous fractures and severe lacerations to the back of his head and mouth. No attempt had been made to reduce the amount of blood splatter during this attack and Adrian's blood covered everything. Not far from Adrian's body was an opened red jerry can half full of petrol and when the medical examiner began the task of removing Adrian's body, it was realised that he had been soaked in it, his skin peeling away as he was lifted from the concrete floor. The jerry can was immediately collected and sent for fingerprint testing. Dr Carla estimated the time of death for all three to be between 8pm the previous night and 1am that morning, providing a five-hour window for when these brutal murders most likely took place. Several items throughout the house were also missing, but the things taken seemed irrelevant compared to the items left behind. Missing was a video recorder, which had been carefully unplugged and removed from its shelf, not disturbing any of the VHS tapes scattered around it. Adrian's school calculator was also missing, as well as Jenny's purse and the patches of carpet cut from her bedroom floor. Drawers throughout the house had been pulled open, some of their contents tipped out, but items of value, Jenny's jewellery box and jewellery and Matthew's wallet, which he'd left behind on the kitchen bench, all remained untouched. To investigators, the crime scene looked staged. It appeared that whoever had committed these murders was trying to throw police off course. A polylight also revealed that blood had been spilt down the tiled hallway, leading from Jennifer's bedroom and through to the kitchen, but an attempt had been made to clean this up. All three victims had been attacked and killed where they were found, so unless the attacker had injured themselves in the process, there was no reason that these blood drops would be found throughout the rest of the house. Detectives wondered if this was the reason that sections of Jenny's bedroom carpet had been cut out. It seemed that the attacker had tried to clean their own blood from the house. Swabs were collected and sent to be forensically tested. A neighbour then came forward to tell investigators that at around 3am he noticed a Holden Commodore sedan, similar to Wayne DeGrucci's car, parked out the front of the DeGrucci house and saw a man who he assumed to be Wayne getting into it. But a quick check revealed that Wayne's car was actually sitting in a mechanic's workshop awaiting repairs from an accident the week prior. He was currently in the possession of a loan car and his alibi was verified. Wayne had not left Sydney at all during the night and he was quickly ruled out as a suspect. But there was still one person whose involvement couldn't be eliminated, 18-year-old Matthew, and after spending a few hours in hospital, he was released to the custody of the police for an interview. Matthew relayed the events from the night before, explaining the prank phone calls spending the night at Alyssa's and the discovery of his mum that morning. But his version of events slightly differed to the statements of others. Matthew's girlfriend Alyssa explained to detectives that when Matthew arrived at her house the previous night, he told her that during one of the prank phone calls, someone on the other end of the line had said that three members of the family would be killed, 
and this was overheard by Alyssa's mother, Gail. But when being interviewed by police, Matthew told them that each call hung up as soon as it was answered. Both Gail and Alyssa said that despite this odd statement, there was nothing out of the ordinary with Matt. They told investigators that he had arrived at their house in his mother's car between 11 and 11.30pm and had on the same clothes that he was still wearing that day, which was a white t-shirt, black track pants and sneakers. There was no blood on his clothes or shoes and he had no signs of any injuries. Stephen Bailey, the DeGrucci's neighbour, was insistent that when Matthew ran from the house that morning, he had said that something was wrong with his mum and Sarah. But Matthew insisted that he never went into Sarah's room, only his mother's. But if so, then how would he know that something was wrong with Sarah? For investigators, something didn't add up. But so far, there was only circumstantial evidence against Matt. So the police had to let him go. During the autopsies the following day, Dr. Carla also noticed a small circular bruise on Adrian's chest, just below his collarbone. And this marking, along with the linear bruises, indicated to him that the weapon used was most likely a wheel brace. Passing this information on to the detectives, they were quick to point out that during the examination of Jenny's car, they had found that the compartment in the boot that held the wheel brace and jack was opened, and while the jack was still securely in place, the jack handle and wheel brace were missing. And a look at the spare tyre showed that this was brand new and had never been on the road. So if the spare tyre had never been removed from the car, one would assume that there should be no reason for the wheel brace and jack compartment to have been accessed. On closer examination of the car, a tiny loose carpet fibre with some staining on it was located on the floor behind the driver's seat. The carpet looked consistent with the missing carpet from Jennifer's bedroom and was sent for analysis. As the funerals for Jennifer, Adrian and Sarah were held, police and search dogs scoured yards, parks, empty lots and open waterways all throughout the area, but turned up nothing. And when results started coming back in from the forensics lab, detectives had more questions for Matthew. Comparison analysis of the fibre found in the car and of the sample taken from the master bedroom carpet showed to be a match. But Matthew explained that there was offcuts of this carpet in the garage and they were often used in the cars to protect the seats from heavy or dirty objects. And Wayne DeGrucci corroborated this. And when Matt's and only Matt's fingerprints were found on the jerry can from the garage, it was pointed out by both Matthew and Wayne that this jerry can was regularly used to fill the cars with petrol and it was Matt's job to do this. A wheel brace the same as the one that would have been supplied in Jennifer's car when it was purchased was obtained by the police and by comparing it to the wounds suffered by all three, it could not be ruled out as the possible murder weapon. But neither Matt or Wayne could explain why the one from Jennifer's car was missing. A check of the incoming and outgoing phone calls from the DeGrucci house that night showed that there was no evidence of any prank phone calls being received. And when pathology results came back showing that the blood found in the hallway and the small drop above Jennifer's bed belonged to Matt, the detectives were still unable to arrest him. Matt lived in the house and his blood could have got there at any other time. Besides, examination of Matthew after the murders revealed he had no visible injuries, marks or bruising and no blood was found on the shoes or clothes he was wearing. Then two months later, on the 13th of May 1996, some local teenagers were riding their BMXs at a nearby disused quarry 
when they noticed a red and white sports bag in the water along the edge of the dam. Fishing it out, they found it contained some pieces of carpet, a hammer and a purse containing the driver's licence belonging to Jennifer de Grucci. The authorities were called and immediate draining of the dam began, eventually revealing two more bags. And in these bags, they found everything they needed to arrest and charge 18-year-old Matthew Wayne de Grucci for the brutal and horrific murders of his mother, brother and sister. Along with the items that were missing from the house, several items of clothing were also recovered, along with a Ziploc bag containing several band-aids and a torn-up piece of paper with something written on it. Document examiner Senior Sergeant Rick Mescar was tasked with the job of reconstructing these 13 small pieces of paper and found it to be what can only be described as a step-by-step checklist of the Grucci murders. Parts of the note read, Open gate. Throw things down wall. Knife. Hole. Tracksuit pants, one. T-shirts, two. Hanky, one. Towel, one. Open blinds to see through. Mum. Sarah. Adrian. Have shower. Hit arm with pole, hit leg with pole, and cut somewhere with knife. Handwriting analysis experts all concluded that Matthew had written this note, and on the 23rd of June 1996, he was arrested and refused bail. Two years later, he stood trial for three counts of murder and was found guilty on October the 14th, 1998, and he was sentenced to 28 years in prison with a minimum of 21. As for the blood found throughout the house that belonged to Matthew, it has been widely assumed that he most likely received a blood nose, and this is why no visible injuries were found on him. In 2019, after spending 23 years incarcerated at Sydney's Long Bay Correctional Centre, 41-year-old Matthew Wayne de Grucci was released on parole despite never admitting responsibility for the slaying of his family. The murder weapon has never been found and Matthew's current location is unknown. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time when we bring you another story picked fresh straight from the crime tree. All photos pertaining to this case will be up on our Instagram at the crime tree.